The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Father, we praise you for your glorious grace that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is our hope. This is our confidence. This is our joy, Father. It is a joy to gather and worship you each Sunday, the first day of the week, a day that is special and significant because it was on a Sunday that Jesus rose from the grave. We praise you that Jesus is risen. He is alive. Our hope is secure in him. And because of this hope, because of this joy, we we worship you today. May your spirit, Lord, impress upon us the importance of this truth that Jesus is risen, giving us a confident hope, a certainty, a realization of our promised future, which impacts everything about how we think and how we live each day. So we thank you for this morning. We commit it to you. We pray in the name of our risen Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Great chapter on the resurrection. I would commend it to you sometime today. Read through the whole chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. We're going to focus on two chunks of it. Uh, The beginning, we'll be reading verses 3 through 8. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 47 to 58. And I want to emphasize two things this morning in relation to the resurrection. One is the certainty of our hope. And the other is the expectation of our hope. What we have to look forward to, which is really exciting. The certainty of our hope and the expectation of our hope. The resurrection is central to our faith. It is real. It is true. And like Christians throughout history, it should, it should change us. It should really change us. So, let's look at these two sections of Scripture. If you're able to stand, would you please do so? 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin verses 3 through 8 and then jump down to 47 to 58. Verses 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now down to verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also 
are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want you to imagine two people, two people with the exact same job at the same company, the very same menial task, the same bad working conditions, the, the same long hours. One of these workers is promised at the end of a year to receive $15,000. And the other is promised at the end of the year to receive $15 million. Now, I'd imagine that one of these workers might be a little more energized than the other, a little more upbeat. They might have a different attitude, a different approach to their work. They might face the challenges of the job with more joy than the other. And we would say that this difference is because they're controlled by the future and not their present day environment. How about us? Are we controlled by what we know to be true concerning the future? As Christians, shouldn't we have a different outlook in life? As those who are in Christ and promised a future that is infinitely better than $15 million, shouldn't this make a difference to us? What we do as Christians, what do we believe about the future? The resurrection of Jesus is the reason we have an inheritance. Promises concerning the future. The early Christian church stood out very much so from their pagan neighbors. Why? Was it they were just made of different stuff? Just better, just stronger, braver in some way? No. And we see this is pretty obvious from the start where one of the disciples of Jesus 
betrays him for a bag of money. Then the leader of the bunch denies Jesus. And then the rest of them run off and hide in fear as their master is executed. So this is who they were. But then look at who they became. Why was there such a dramatic change in these cowards? Cowards who suddenly became bold and even willing to die torturous deaths for what they believed about the future. And we see a dramatic rise and triumph and spread of hope in in all the nations. A movement that changed the world. History tells us that there was a remarkable difference between these first century Christians and their pagan neighbors. The same kind of work, the same environment, the same menial task, the same long hours. But I want to give you just a a few examples of how they were different. When the great epidemics hit the urban areas of the Greco-Roman world, one kind of person fled from the cities to keep themselves from getting sick and dying. And the other, the Christian, the Christians, they stayed. They cared for the sick, knowing that they likely would get sick, and many of them died as a result. When the Christians were persecuted, when they were put to death unjustly, they did not respond like other people would, retaliating with violence or trying to organize groups to, to strike guerrilla warfare style. No, they, they responded actually by, very much like Jesus, praying for the forgiveness of their enemies. Wow, incredible. History tells us that at the height of the Roman Empire, as Rome had had conquered all the nations around them, there was this dramatic social change as cities became very multi-ethnic. Because there was no national borders, the, the people from various cultures were now living in the same cities. And as a result, there was a lot of ethnic tension. But first century Christians responded differently. Some scholars have actually pointed out that the church was the the first institution to cross those ethnic differences, to embrace and include and love people who were different. There was no division. There was no pecking order concerning races. Why? Why do we see these Christians so much more compassionate than others to to stay at the risk and cost of their own lives to care for the sick? Why were they so forgiving when wrongly accused and persecuted? Why were they so loving and inclusive in a way that nobody had ever seen before? Were they just nicer people? More sophisticated, more modern in their approach? No. The reason they were so different 
was because of what they believed about the future. Two kinds of people doing the the same kind of work, living in the same world. They lived differently because of what they know is their future. Their pagan neighbors were very uncertain about the future, but Christians had hope. Not a wishful, cross-your-fingers kind of hope, but a joyful certainty and absolute confidence in what awaited them. They stayed in the cities and cared for the sick because they didn't fear death. Death's sting had been removed. Death is swallowed up in victory. They didn't respond in violence to the persecution because they trusted there was a final day and God would set everything right. The Greeks and Romans had no concept of a, of a final judgment, day of judgment, but Christians, they did. And so they thought, ultimately, I don't need to be the judge. One day in the future, God will make all things right. And they were inclusive and loving because unlike their pagan neighbors, they understood that God was God of all peoples. He is over all nations. And he was about creating a new people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Christians had a completely different and joyous outlook, a confident belief about the future. And because of this, their attitudes and their actions stood out. And the question for us is, how could they be so certain? How could they be so certain? What was the key to such a strong Christian hope? Answer, it has to be the resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't matter that we are a couple thousand years removed from this event. It's either true or it isn't. Our future expectations are either the same as theirs or we're just a bunch of fools. But they knew, they knew with absolute certainty, a certainty that changed the world, and this is our faith as well. Why were they so certain about the resurrection? Maybe you've heard skeptics concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Skeptics, one argument that you might hear is uh, uh, someone saying, you know, first century ancient people, they were just much more open to the miraculous, that something like that could happen. We we live in a scientific age. We have a, a different worldview that just doesn't allow for a dead person to come back to life. And we hear this and we think, okay, sounds like a reasonable argument, but really the problem with that is it's a really ignorant view of worldviews in the first century. It does not represent their worldviews at all. During that time, in that part of the world, there were really only two two major worldviews, two basic worldviews. One worldview 
was that of the Greeks and Romans. And their worldview basically said, the body is bad and the spirit is good. And so death to them was viewed as a liberation, a liberation of the soul. And therefore the idea of a bodily resurrection as being something good, crazy, unthinkable, ridiculous. They wouldn't have thought that at all. They wouldn't have thought it to be a good thing, certainly. And then the other worldview was that of the Jew. And the Jews believed at the end of time, when God sets everything right and there is no more sin, no more corruption, at that time, there might be a resurrection. They were, what, Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed about a resurrection. So some of them believe, yes, there'll be a resurrection, but it's linked to the end of time when everything is set right. And so the idea that that in the middle of history, in the middle of history, when there's still evil, there's still sin, there's still death, there's still corruption going on, that an individual in the middle of history would be resurrected, not in their thinking at all. Not possible in their thinking at all. I heard of an interview with a a modern-day rabbi who was asked, why do you believe that, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Which is kind of a bold question for for a Jew. And he responded, his response is an example of this Jewish worldview. He said, how could he be? Death continues, disease continues, injustice continues. He couldn't have been the Messiah. To the Jew, an individual resurrection in the middle of time with ongoing sin and corruption makes no sense whatsoever. And so the modern skeptic It's just simply wrong. He misrepresents an ancient worldview. In fact, an ancient worldview was just as opposed, if not more so. Think about the weird worldviews of today and what people are open to. So the ancient worldview was probably even more opposed to to this kind of possibility than, than people of today. So this being the case... Why did so many people in the first century believe this? Here are three things to consider. Belief spread because a worldview changed overnight. Worldviews don't change overnight. Something very convincing must have actually occurred if people so quickly believed what they had no category for whatsoever. I don't think you can find another example in all of history where a people so quickly changed their entire worldview. Worldviews change, but they take a long time. There are, history will show there are schools of thought, there are spectrums of belief, there are groups, there are debates, there's a lot of back and forth. And over years and generations, people's idea of how things work in their universe eventually changes. This is how worldviews 
changed. We've seen it. Modernism and postmodernism and post-postmodernism and post-truth. It's all happened over 150 years. Not overnight. But what we see concerning the resurrection is that overnight there is 100% agreement over the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And it comes out of nowhere as far as their previously held worldview. But suddenly, thousands of Jews and Greeks all began to believe something that no worldview, no philosophy had ever allowed for in the history of the world, that a man had been bodily resurrected and therefore proved that he was the Son of God. So how did this happen? How did so many people so quickly change? A second thing to consider is what Paul tells us in our text, that hundreds and hundreds of people personally encountered Jesus in his resurrection body. When people think of the the resurrection, they don't always consider the facts, the eyewitness, eyewitness testimonies, that actual the actual documented history, both biblical and secular history writings concerning us that tell Jesus appeared to all sorts of people over 40 days. It wasn't, you know, sometimes we, I just think, people think it was some grainy photo, the resurrection, some weird, uncertain thing some grainy photo that, that like a Loch Ness monster or, or Bigfoot to, that they scratch their head and think, well, maybe that's a guy dressed up in a bear suit. No, it was personal. It was, it was intimate uh, uh, conversations that Jesus had. Forty days of people talking with him, eating with him, actually touching his wounds. All sorts of variety. Here's a, a collection. Variety in Judea, in Galilee. Are these appearances in Judea, in Galilee, in town, the countryside, indoors, outdoors, in the morning, in the evening, by prior appointment, without prior appointment, close, distant, on a hill, by a lake, to groups of men, groups of women, individuals, and groups up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. There were all sorts of occurrences. Peter Williams writes that many are explicitly up-close encounters involving conversations. It is hard to imagine this pattern of appearances recorded in the Gospels and early Christian writings without there having been multiple individuals who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. People saw him. Multiple times they talked with him. Paul tells us in our text, he appeared to to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And you'll hear skeptics say, well, people just hallucinated. Well, not in groups of 500, the same hallucination. That doesn't happen. And he says most of whom are still alive. Writing this public document 
about 20 years from the event of the resurrection, about 20 years removed, Paul writes this that's available to the public saying, you know, the roads are open here in the Roman Empire. Go talk to them. They're still alive. And he wouldn't have written this if it could be so easily disproved by simply going and talking to people who are still alive. If it didn't happen, he wouldn't have written what could so easily be disproved. But there were hundreds of eyewitnesses, even 500 at one time. This is how Christianity spread so rapidly. Think of it. If it were you, and you, and you actually talked to the resurrected Jesus, you, you touched him, you saw, you heard, you, you talked to the risen Christ, what would you do? You would, you would tell all your family, you would tell all your friends, this is too big. This is too big to keep quiet about. You'd say, you know, I know this sounds, this sounds crazy. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But I just talked to Jesus. So that's what's happening with hundreds and hundreds of people. They're going and telling hundreds of people. And then eventually, suddenly, there's thousands upon thousands of people who become Christians. This is why they were so certain. Because it actually happened. A third thing that we know for sure is that hundreds of Christians who saw the risen Lord were willing to die for this truth. They were that certain. Instead of recanting, they willingly and even joyfully died for their faith. They were thrown to the lions. And many were said to have responded with with singing. Talk about a confident hope of the future. The resurrection changed everything. This certainty concerning their future with God made all of the difference in the world in how they approached life and death. A certainty that enabled them to face lions. And if you're a Christian, the reality of the resurrection should make a difference in the way that you live, the way that we live today. Because of the resurrection, we have a certain hope of our future with God. And like the early Christians, we should be able to face anything, right? It may not be lying. Anytime soon. No, with us, it's, it's a lump. It's a diagnosis. It's a fire. A divorce. Loss of a job. And the same hope that enables our brothers and sisters from the first century to face lions... That same hope is ours to face our whatever. Our faith is not wishful thinking. It's not a social gathering. It's not about self-improvement. It's not about becoming a, a more moral person or thinking positively in order to manifest whatever reality. It's not some 
new form of therapy. It all hinges on the resurrection. And if this is not true, then Paul tells us we are pitiful fools. If we gather just because we like the people and it's a good social or networking opportunity or I'm going to become a better person and you don't believe in the resurrection, you're a fool. We may as well get what we can here and now because there is no guarantee of anything good in the future if we don't believe in the resurrection. And in this case, we will be just like everyone else. So the resurrection gives us a certainty about the future. But what will this look like? What are some things that we can expect? At the end of this great chapter, I want to I focus on three descriptions about our future, three expectations which are certain because of the resurrection. First, we read in verse 55, O death! Where is your sting? In other words, the sting has been removed. But what exactly is the sting? The sting is not, don't think of the sting as like the the pain that you feel at a bite. The sting is not the bite. The sting is the poison in the bite. The poison in the bite that will kill you. It's lethal. I think what they had in mind here was like a scorpion, a lethal poisonous sting. And we might say, oh death, where is your poison? Because of the resurrection, it's a stingless death. It's a death that can't kill us. And that sounds kind of funny. It's a death that can't kill us. Paul tells us in verse 56 that the sting of death is sin. The poison of death is sin, which leads to death. And the power of sin is the law which condemns us. But for those who are are not in Christ and have no hope of the resurrection, the sting of death remains. The fear of death remains. And this is why people... Whatever they might say in life, if they have an an event where they think they're going to die or they're on their deathbed, what you typically see are people who are afraid, who have their life flashed before their eyes, and they have regret, and they think, I should have lived differently. Well, if you believed in annihilation, why would you even have any fear whatsoever? They know There's an accounting accounting for their life. There's a reckoning for what we have done. So Paul is telling us that because of the resurrection, all who are in Christ will die but not be killed. Unless the Lord comes before you die, you'll die but you won't be killed. Your death has no sting, no poison, nothing that will kill you, that is, condemn you, because Jesus took the sting. He took the poison for you. He paid the price, and the resurrection is proof. It's like a receipt stamped paid. 
And you hang on to that. Secondly, because of the resurrection, we look forward to material newness. Oh, and you can speculate all sorts of things here that's fun. Look at verse 54. It says, the perishable puts on the imperishable. The perishable puts on the imperishable. If you dread the thought of heaven because you imagine it is some ethereal, ghost-like existence, let your dread be gone. Because this does not say the perishable puts on the immaterial. No, it says the perishable puts on the imperishable. Your material body that perishes, that wears out and gets old and shrivels, will put on new material that will never wear out, that will never deteriorate. Instead of, instead of the physical you becoming the spiritual you, this says the physical you that doesn't hold up, that eventually wears out, will become the more physical you that will last forever. That's great news. Yes, there is, we know there is a time of waiting, right? If we die, we're in the presence of the Lord, but we're awaiting the resurrection that comes at the last day. So yes, there's a time of waiting before we receive our resurrection bodies, but our ultimate existence is not floating around in as some disembodied spirits in another realm. No, when God created, think of it, when God created the world, the material world, what did he say? He said that this material stuff is good. It's good. Platonism, Gnosticism says that our material bodies are the bad part of us and that our spirits are the good part of us. And sadly, many Christians think that way. They've been influenced by paganism to think of body bad, spirit good. That's paganism. That is not biblical Christianity whatsoever. No, this is the, the immaterial... Or we put on the immaterial, excuse me. So what we have to look forward to is not a doing away with. What we have to look forward to is is a redemption of creation. God's not doing away with creation. He's redeeming it along with new bodies for you. Not an elimination of what's good, but a redemption of what's good. And the resurrection of Jesus communicates this truth. His perishable material body was resurrected a new material body that is imperishable. And one day, this is what we have to look forward to. One day, this is what we will have. The resurrection, uh, the resurrected Jesus was not a ghost. No, he had, he had a new physical material body that people saw and touched. They put their fingers in his side and and thank the Lord he ate which is really good news because when you have your lunch or dinner today I want you to actually think one day when I get my resurrected body I'm I may not have to eat 
but I get to eat. I can eat. I can still enjoy this. This is good news. When you're, so, so have, have more the, the argument that Jesus' resurrected body, it was more physical in that it could do more things. And who knows how many, how many senses this new body might have. We might have hundreds of senses instead of just five basic senses in this body that tends to wear out. And the older I get, I'm having to say, I'm sorry, can you say that again? Or I'm having to wear glasses to read and another set of glasses to watch TV. And I don't, I, I think I'm down to like 3.75 senses about now. Jesus' new material body was able to do more. He, it, he seemingly walked through walls, right? He entered into this locked room. So that's kind of mysterious, this realization, which is really exciting to me because I have a certain, I like to speculate about the future. I have this speculation that's, that's troubled me about the afterlife that's, um, when I think about, a new resurrection body having more senses and more capabilities. Maybe, I don't know how, but maybe it's the answer to my dilemma. Here's my dilemma. And I don't know if you've thought the same thing. Jesus has a physical body, right? A new physical body that you touch. We're going to have new physical bodies. We're not ghosts. What does everyone say they want to do? want to give Jesus a hug. What's the line going to look like? That's an awfully long line. Is it? Will there be a ticket? Kind of like you go to Grover's and customer service and you pull the ticket and then you wait until, until it's your turn. And that ticket's going to be like in the billions. So it's a long line. But if there is a long line, good news You won't be sinners anymore. You won't even be capable of sinning. There won't be impatience. You'll be, it'll be the best line ever. We'll have a great time. You'll be saying to the person behind you, no, really, you go ahead of me. Everyone's going to be saying the same thing. No, really, you. Well, we won't get anywhere. Anyway, this is where my mind tends to go. But maybe this is, maybe there's an answer for me here in that, we will have a new, new capabilities, new bodies. And so, I, you know, I joke, but it's going to be incredible. Physical bodies with much more capabilities. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but we're not going to be disappointed. And finally, because of the resurrection, we have a swallowed suffering. What does the victory of the resurrection do? Does it remove our suffering? Does it remove our death? No. It swallows it. Think of it this way. If you have a a delicious piece of pie sitting on the table, you you can get rid of that pie in a couple of different ways, can't you? You can throw it away or you can eat it. And when you eat it, it gives you energy. It uh, enhances you. Maybe in good ways and bad ways. But you swallow it. The resurrection is not, it's not a, um, simply a comfort 
for your suffering. It's not even a removal of your suffering. No, the resurrection, it swallows your suffering. Have you ever lost anything that you really love and you look for it for weeks and and after a couple of weeks, suddenly you find it? That pain of loss now becomes an even greater joy and it's transferred to that thing that you found and you appreciate it and you love it more than you ever would have if you hadn't lost it in the first place. Verse 49 tells us that we will bear the image or likeness of the man of heaven. And what is it that we notice about the resurrected Jesus? He still has scars. His wounds are still there. The very thing connected to his sorrows is now a part of his glory. It's been swallowed up in victory. Something lost, something associated with suffering now becomes all the more precious to you. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says that our afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. There's purpose, purpose to our suffering. The resurrection doesn't simply make these things disappear. No, they are, they are a part of who you are. There is purpose. They become precious to us, a greater joy, a weight of glory as they are swallowed up in victory. Death and suffering are defeated because the resurrection doesn't simply remove or throw away our greatest pains. No, our deepest experiences of sorrows are swallowed up and we're given a greater joy than if, we'd, if they'd never happened to us. A greater joy than if it never happened to you. The resurrection changes everything. For those who trust in Jesus. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe the sting of death is gone? Do you believe that one day your perishable body will put on the imperishable? Do you believe your sufferings are purposeful. They are swallowed up in victory. This is our certain hope. It's not wishful thinking. It should change our attitudes and how we work, how we live, how we sacrifice, how we love, how we forgive. Let this be our confident hope. Let's pray. Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word, cause us to embrace the truth of Jesus' work on our behalf. That he died for our sins. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. Lord, we believe And yet, it seems we live in ways that betray this belief. So please help our unbelief. Help us to have a growing and certain hope of the resurrection. And all that this means for us.
cause us to marvel at the truth and implications and promises that are ours, so much so, so much so that we can face lions or lumps, that we can forgive and love, that we can trust you in all things, in our sufferings, being swallowed up in victory, in our stingless deaths because Jesus took the poison for us. Oh, what a glorious inheritance that is ours because Jesus is risen. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you for this opportunity to be together and worship you this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.